And so when we talk about gentrification or or the eradication of a neighborhood, we're really talking about the erasure of an entire community as well, not just the physical buildings and, and homes and, and businesses and restaurants, but the, the culture of, of community that was there is also erased. Um, and that's the hardest, um, That's the, I think that's the hardest hit to take. And it wasn't until um, 2005 that a new building was opened because of the advocacy of people who were there in the 70s. So they kept fighting for another 25 years over an empty space to make sure that we get that building back and now it's 104 units of affordable senior housing. Um, so it's it was it was a really long struggle to to we going space to place we going space to place we going we going space to place we going space to place we going space to place we going tell me what you talking about we going space to place we going space to place we going Welcome to Space to Place, the podcast where we explore the geographic concepts of space and place by interviewing amazing people across the United States. I'm Cade. And I'm Cole. And we're your co-hosts. We began this project by interviewing people about what turns spaces into places for them. And we've learned that it's incredibly specific and varied and based on everyone's individual stories. So we started digging deeply into these stories. Last episode, we learned how Kinta's upbringing in the Bay Area shaped his life trajectory and the work that he does now. It taught him that space is incredibly important for how each individual perceives the world and feels like they can take up space in that world. If you remember, we called that identity space. And thus, it is a powerful tool for trying to change or broaden people's perceptions. Now we're actually in the lovely Bay Area itself, and we want to explore that tool further. From the beginning, I knew we needed to focus an episode on gentrification. What better way to understand how changes in space and place affect people than by examining how gentrification is changing some of our largest and densest cities? And what better city to examine than the great city of San Francisco? For this episode, episode three of the season, we're going to be speaking with Joy about gentrification and space changing in San Francisco and the Bay Area. Joy is an activist and a researcher who works for the Bayanahan Equity Center in Soma, the south of Market neighborhood in San Francisco. Joy also does independent research with Asian American hip-hop artists, breakdancers known as b-boys, and graffiti artists, trying to understand how their spaces and works are being changed by the gentrification in the Bay Area. We'll be speaking to her about all kinds of stuff, including her work with housing in San Francisco, her personal research, the, the history of gentrification and space changing in the Bay Area, and finally, some ways people are working to reclaim that space. But before we get started, we just want to share a little context for something that Joy talks about a lot in the interview, the International Hotel, or the I-Hotel. The International Hotel was a low-income residential hotel in the historic neighborhood Manila Town. Manila Town was a seven-block stretch neighborhood filled with businesses, restaurants, and pool halls that was home to the Filipino-American population of San Francisco. Being some of the only places welcoming to Filipino-Americans in the entire city, Manila Town and the I Hotel were critical areas that served as cultural touchpoints for these oppressed communities. Despite powerful community uprising, Manila Town was demolished in the 70s and 80s to make room for the modern financial district of San Francisco. But stay tuned to learn what came of the iHotel. And if you're interested, you can learn more about them both at www.manilatown.org. 
Sounds like it'll be really interesting. Let's get to the interview. Okay, cool. Um, my name is Joy Ng. Um, I am 29, and my pronouns are she, her. Um, I currently work at Vineyard Equity Center in South of Market, San Francisco, and I missed one. What was it? <laughs> Where are you from? And I'm from San Francisco. And you live here now. Yeah, and yeah. I live here. I still live here. Perfect. Um, and so you talked about the space you work in. Um, can you say that again? What was it called? Uh, Bayanihan Bayanihan. Equity Center. Cool. Yeah. Uh, can you briefly describe the work you do here? Um, so the work that I do for Bayanihan Equity Center mostly consists of um, direct social services for seniors and adults with disability. Um, and that can um, include program and activities, anything like bingo and karaoke, to more educational-based workshops around um, their benefits or Medicare, things like that, um, and also um, anything that includes housing, um, that can be searching for housing, problems with their landlord or building, um, and all the way up to eviction cases. So anything that, um, that they need help navigating or need translating, um, we're here to help them with that. Cool. Can you describe how your experiences and the spaces around you growing up and until now led you to the work that you're doing now? That is a very loaded question. Yeah, it's um, big. <laughs> we can break it down step by step. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll tackle it. Yeah. Um, so I, I grew up in San Francisco. I lived in the Outer Mission my whole life and I'm still in the Excelsior. I went to school in San Francisco and I think um, going to public schools in San Francisco especially, you get mixed in with uh, different neighborhoods. And I went to school with kids from the Tenderloin and South of Market, mm -hmm. which are two of the most neglected neighborhoods in San Francisco. Um, I also went to Thurgood Marshall High School um, out in Bayview Hunters Point, which is also a very neglected neighborhood in San Francisco. Um, and so I think my, my experiences as a young, young person of color in San Francisco was really being able to, um, you know, observe these conditions as well every day on the way to school, on the way home, um, it's the same conditions that I saw. And so going to San Francisco State, where I got into ethnic studies and Asian American studies, where I finally learned this academic language to help me formulate mm -hmm. what those conditions were and why they were, um, helped me to understand my, my role and my agency in my community. Um, and so one of the one of the biggest things that I learned from college was that everybody has a role. Not everybody has not everybody has to be MLK to make a difference. Sure. You know? Um, and so one of the, the biggest takeaways was that how do we how do we connect your college education to the community that you come from? How do we use your skills to uplift your community? Um, and so I started doing a lot of volunteer work around student organizing, campus organizing, um, and then outside of college with the Manila Town Heritage Foundation and the International Hotel, which is also a very um, historical piece of um, San Francisco history around affordable housing. Um, so I can I can dive that in I can dive into that um, a little bit later as well with my research. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so um, you know, getting into that into Asian American, Filipino American culture and politics um, in, in this community has also taught me that it's it's not just about appreciating and celebrating culture, but it's also about the people who are who are um, still in these conditions and, and need some kind of advocacy. And so um, it's it's important that 
that we learn that it's not coming from a savior mentality, but that everybody just gets their hands on the pot and, and, and help out in some way. And so for me, it was also a jump from um, working with, with students and teaching educational workshops about history, um, the Filipino American history around the International Hotel to direct services. And there's, there's a huge learning curve there because um, then now we're talking about it, it goes from talking about history and historical things that have already happened to working with people in front of you um, mm -hmm. and, and their lives and their real lives today. Um, and so what I do today is um, hopefully a lot more impactful than, um, it's a different kind of impact than the work that I was doing um, as a cultural organizer of sorts. Um, but I get to work directly with families and seniors, and I see the impact, and I see, um, you know, the conditions that they're in. Um, so it's, yeah. So I guess that's kind of the trajectory of um, where I come from and, and how it's led me to the work that I do. Sure. Yeah. Um, and if you have anything else to say about it, I'm not sure if you do, could you dive a little bit more into how the spaces around you growing up mm -hmm. made you want to pursue this work and this career? Oh, yeah. Okay, um, so earlier I mentioned the International Hotel. Um, the International Hotel was this, is this huge landmark of um, affordable housing, and in the 1970s, there was this huge struggle to, to keep the building, and the struggle took over two decades. It included student activists at the time, um, Asian American um, educators, uh, community members, labor unions, people were coming together to save this building that housed elderly Filipino and Chinese um, men who didn't have families. Um, and so that history was so, um, it was such a huge piece of San Francisco and yet it wasn't really taught and I didn't get to learn about it until I was in college. And that physical space is actually on Kearney and Jackson Street on the edge of Financial District and Chinatown. Um, and having grown up in Chinatown and running around there with my grandparents all the time, I had no idea that place existed. Mm -hmm. But I waited, actually waited for the bus at that corner every day for three years going to middle school and had no idea what that space was. Mm -hmm. And at that time, it was just a huge hole um, in the ground because they had torn the building down. So it wasn't until college that I got to learn about this place and, and I thought like, whoa, I, I know that intersection. I stood at that intersection every morning for three years and had no idea what was there. Um, and that history still isn't really taught in elementary or middle school or high schools. Um, and that's only a few major in ethnic studies or Asian American studies that we have access to this kind of history um, or knowledge. So also being that it was, it was, um, so inaccessible, that knowledge was so inaccessible for some, um, made me really passionate about, um, you know, the impact that it had on me and watching a documentary about the I Hotel in college and, and seeing it for the first time was like, wow, I had never seen Asian Americans at that capacity of power, of that human power, political power, social power. Um, and that really inspired me to, to, um, help me look for what my role would be in the community. Yeah. Um, and so that's how I ended up teaching workshops about the iHotel for oh. a few years. Yeah, what, what was that like? I'm curious, like when you first had that, that breakthrough moment, when you realized that this space you were learning about was a, a space that you had like been on the corner of for mm -hmm. so many years, and at the same time it 
you know, it had this group of people around it, like taking power and mm-hmm. working at some point to impact some kind of like change in that community. Like what was the, the visceral like reaction to that? At the um, beginning? It was, I, it brought me to my knees. I cried so much watching that documentary. Um, but it was also very humbling. Um, on one hand, it's very, um, you know, there, there's not enough um, care to put this in our curriculum. There's not enough of that to um, really teach us these that this is the community that you come from and this is what happened. Yeah. Um, and that's not standardized, you know. Um, and it and it also reflects the way that um, these spaces are easily bought over and um, kind of just taken over and, and destroyed. Um, and the I Hotel was part of a greater neighborhood called Manila Town that was destroyed in the 70s and 60s. Um, which is now the financial district. Um, mm. And so an entire neighborhood was destroyed in order to do that. Um, and so it's it's very reflective of the world that we live in now, mm-hmm. um, where affordable housing is so scarce. Um, but for me, it's it's also a way of, on one hand, it's that's the, the negative side, but the positive side is that there was so much um, inspiration and people power behind that. Um, and the people who were involved, a lot of them are still around today as educators um, and community activists. So they're still around to share that knowledge with us. And, and they're the ones who are still, um, you know, in, in the movement to push for affordable housing in San Francisco. Wow. Wow, that's really cool. Um, the question I have is, I'd like you to explain how the spaces around you, the ones we were talking about, have mm-hmm. changed during your lifetime and the effect that has had on on you, how you mm-hmm. feel about them, and how you feel like you can take up space within them. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. it does. Especially it, given yeah. that you just talked about this really important neighborhood mm-hmm. being turned into the financial district. Yeah, um, I think that's a, that's a question that every person who was born and raised in San Francisco will take to heart. Mm-hmm. Um, just because watching Watching the city change around us um, in in this time is really difficult um, because of the struggles around um, booming tech companies, um, families not being able to afford housing, being pushed out of the city. I myself am refusing to get priced out of the city, which is why I'm still here. Um, Over 50% of my income goes to rent. Mm -hmm. Um, And so a lot of the questions around space, taking up space in San Francisco, um, when you're from San Francisco, when you're born and raised here, is really heartbreaking, um, to be honest. And um, there's there's a lot of artists who feel that their spaces are, are being um, bought out and, and not being recognized as the historical landmarks they should be. Um, and and I'm pretty sure you've heard San Francisco is the most expensive place to live yeah, right sure. now. And it's there's no lie around that. Um, and so everything from you know art to housing to to everything else, it's a lot of it just comes down to money mm-hmm. um, and being able to afford the spaces to exist here. Um, so for for me, it's it's difficult watching um, faces change in the neighborhood. It's difficult watching um, you know seniors come in with their stories about not being able to afford housing because their landlord sold the entire building and they're going to turn it into condos i can't even express how often we get that story um and it's it's really heartbreaking um that we can't find an alternative to to help families stay in the city um, when they've contributed to this this cultural fabric um and to the vibrancy of the city so it's a lot of it 
really um, comes down to to money and and it's hard to combat that when um, we're just trying to make a living to stay here yeah wow yeah um, it seems like you you specifically chose an education path that would like at least put you in contact with some of these things mm-hmm. but how did that whole process go like when did you decide I want to do ethnic and cultural studies mm-hmm. um, and were the resources you needed and wanted available um, it was just like a, a process of finding the right people or did you really have to like yeah. grab and 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 take the ones you needed like how mm-hmm. did that whole process go mm-hmm. um, yeah definitely the the beautiful part about living in San Francisco is that it's so diverse yeah. um, but the thing that I didn't realize growing up here was that I didn't have a language to describe the experiences of, um, you know, microaggressions or mm-hmm. experiencing racism or sexism as a woman of color. Like, those things weren't really readily available to me through standardized, like, uh, education in, in middle school, high school, or whatever, um, and even in college. So when I got the chance to take Asian American studies and ethnic studies, um, those classes were the places where I, I, found, I saw people that looked like me reflected in the curriculum mm-hmm. and thought like, wow, I'm, I'm actually learning about an Asian American woman. I'm actually learning about a community that I come from. And it's, it's sad because it took so long to, to get to that class um, and to learn this language. Um, and so I think that because I saw so much of my own family and my own community in these studies um, and it helped me to make sense of what was happening around my life and my world and my communities that I just I couldn't ignore that you know um, so I it's given me you know it's this language and these resources to get involved and I just I just ran with it mm-hmm. um... I think I want to take a pivot now and talk about the people you work with a little bit more and the work that you're doing. Um, so just to re refresh a little bit, um, you talked about the work that you're doing here in the Equity Center. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the personal research you're doing? Yeah, as well? definitely. Um, so I started my personal research um, in college when I was doing my senior thesis for Asian American Studies, um, and I chose to write about uh, hip hop and uh, Asian American identity and resistance, um, mostly because um, when I was a teenager, up until now, I listened to a lot of hip-hop, and I listened to a lot of Common and Talib Kweli, and, and those songs were also reflective of talking about communities, conditions similar to ours, mm-hmm. and um, it was also a channel to express how you felt or things that were happening um, and I thought it was it was amazing and my friends are also also had friends who were b-boys and graffiti artists um, and so I saw a lot of self-expression um, and I was surrounded by that all the time and so when I got to Asian American studies um, and being surrounded by the conversation of representation and history and cultural context um, I thought that Whereas, you know, I thought that this piece was missing. So um, I took on this project, this essay project, mostly because of the topic of gentrification. Mm. Um, Because I work with so many people who are looking for housing, who have lost housing, can't afford housing, um, and are are kind of um, struggling to keep their spaces in San Francisco. Um, I thought, you know, what about our dancers? Um, there have been a few spaces in San Francisco that got shut down. Um, there's the historical cell space, which was a gallery that turned into this practice space for b-boys at night. Um, and people from all over would come to cell space to practice together, to dance together, to, ha- to have their competitions and jams there. So um, 
when that space closed in 2014, it was a really heartbreaking moment for yeah. the b-boy community, not just in San Francisco, but for everybody who's traveled to come here and mm. participate. Um, and then just earlier this year, there was another space called uh, City Dance that got um, closed, and they have another uh, location opening up, but it was also another um, piece of that pattern of shutting down spaces for for dancers and artists as well so um for me the question was well if we have this pattern of gentrification and, and loss of space physical space in san francisco what is that impact looking like for for b-boys specifically so that's when i decided to do that research and ask people um you know where are you from and and the criteria that was that they lived in the bay area for the last 10 years that um, they're still active um, and they had some memory to share about these spaces and how they felt about it. But yeah, so so that's that's really where it comes from. Um, but but other than this essay, I, I mostly um, write around um, music and community and social justice. And when I did my research, there wasn't a lot of writing or literature around Asian Americans and hip hop. And so my goal is to create. Um, interview, write, and contribute to this body of literature and research so that in the future if there are any other students or academics who want to do this, that they'll know there is a pool that is being built, yeah. you know, um, and, and I'm, I'm trying to just going back to create those resources that I need it. So hopefully whoever else in the future is doing this work, they know that I'm here to support you and, and go ahead and use my sources. They're cited and they're, they're backed with academic um, research as well, so... Wow, that's so valuable. I love that. I want to dive into one part of that um, because I think that a lot of people who don't have really strong cultural or community roots in a specific area, mm -hmm. um, like a specific city or, or state or whatever it is, don't really understand how it feels to be pushed out of your spaces, um, spaces that are historically or culturally or otherwise important to you and your family or people mm -hmm. that you care and care about and love. Um, so from your own experience and from the experiences of the people you work with, can you sort of give us an idea of like how that feels for people? Yeah, I think I'll go back to the I Hotel as an example. Um, with the, the neighborhood of Manila Town, was, um, it was like a seven block stretch of businesses, uh, restaurants, pool halls. And at the time um, when it was being um, built um, over time by this com the Filipino community that lived there, um, that space they have, they had because they were excluded from other places. Because of overt racism from, from other parts of the city, they were forced to build their community in that seven block yeah. strip, what, which is um, uh, what is now Financial District. Um, and so in that area was, you know, fa were families and at the time there was no internet. There was no internet, there was no um, uh, Wi-Fi or anything. So the way that you go and find jobs is by word of mouth. And so all these restaurants and homes and, and businesses were places where you go to meet people to, um, to figure out, well, what's happening next in the neighborhood? Who's going where? Where's the next job going? Um, and, and, these, and these spaces were also... Um, vibrant you know there was it was people living there it was people thriving and, and trying to survive in san francisco they were also migrant laborers who worked in canneries in alaska and farms in delano and stockton um and so these were people who were really um trying to make a living and so when we talk about 
gentrification or or the eradication of a neighborhood we're really talking about the erasure of an entire community as well not just the physical buildings and, and homes and, and businesses and restaurants but the the culture of, of community that was there is also erased um, and that's the hardest um, that's the, I think that's the hardest hit to take and it wasn't until um, 2005 that a new building was opened because of the advocacy of people who were there in the 70s so they kept fighting for another 25 years over an empty space to make sure that we get that building back and now it's 104 units of affordable senior housing um, so it's it was it was a really long struggle to to um, to save that physical space. but they kind of won that fight I guess yeah 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 that's awesome in the long run I guess that's kind of a good segue can you talk more about and describe more about the efforts that there were or there are um, to mitigate or fight against the negative effects of gentrification and mm. space changing? Mm, okay. Um, this conversation I'm not particularly good at with, the, with city politics um, because there are advocates out there that inform us of what's happening and how our seniors and our population can be impacted. So there are um, groups like Manila Town Heritage Foundation, um, other other organizations in San Francisco that actively advocate for funding for affordable housing um, that that are very keen to what um, new developments mean in San Francisco. Um, and because we are keen to the history of the I-Hotel, we've seen what developments look like and what it does to neighborhoods like Manila Town. Um, what, what it took in order to build a financial district, you had to destroy an entire neighborhood. Um, and so for organizations in the SOMA, um, there's a lot of pushback for um, against um, developments that are that are interested in this area um, because it looks like an area that can be quote-unquote beautified or um, you know made um, like uh, what's the word they, they, they use um, kind of like to make it look better or to redevelop right to yeah. redevelop the area sure. um, but there are a lot of families who, who live here still and so um, there's a lot of interest in this area, but um, organizers know that the direct impact of that will be pushing out families who will not be able to afford to live here, and that in turn will destroy another neighborhood in San Francisco. So that's the short version of it that I understand. Yeah. Um, but there are, um, yeah, like right now, Proposition C is um, going to be on the ballot, and that will provide more funding for social services. Um, for homeless individuals in San Francisco um, and a lot of politicians are coming out against it especially like Mayor London Breed who kind of made a, a point to walk around the neighborhood and take photos of the conditions of homeless individuals on the streets and needles and and all these things but um, she also is coming out against Prop C which would funnel a lot of funding into programs that would help the people on these streets mm. um, so it's really interesting to watch politics play out that way um, but I'm I'm personally trying to stay focused on the people who um, come here for our services day to day yeah um, and keep them in mind when I go to the voting booth but also for overall San Francisco um, you know being able to afford to live here and I think that conversation has grown so large that any move that the city makes 
has to come down to can people still afford to live here um and and any funding that goes anywhere is could that be funneled towards affordable housing you know and it's just so the city is so dense with so many people um and there's not enough housing for for people um and it's it's really um i'm, I'm thinking about um, when seniors go stand in line for their applications mm -hmm. every once in a while there will be senior housing, like housing applications yeah housing okay. applications senior housing applications available mm -hmm. and the average number of people that apply to for each one is around six thousand or more um and that could just be for a wait list and that's that and that's also lotteried into a ranking for that wait list um and so we're we're seeing a lot of money come into san francisco personally i'm seeing a lot of money come into san francisco through you know developments in tech but we also but i also don't know where it's going if it's not supporting the people who already live here for so long um so it's it's really um strange to i guess it's it's um reframing how we talk about space when we talk about density and population density um and and really paying attention to what people need and how we help them get there um, and what role the city plays in, in helping us get there or not helping us get sure. there. Sure. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that answered the question. You no, know, it does. And it leads me in a, a different direction to, like, what do you think about um, responsibility in, in, in changing, uh, you know, the status quo in this, especially around affordable housing? Um, I think that's a very... I think that's a very good question that could answer itself. Um, I think there is a responsibility to know um, the spaces that we each take up. Um, and when I say know the spaces, to know the historical context of those spaces. Yeah. Um, to understand your role in those spaces. And so um, I think for San Francisco, I think it's important for people who choose to move here. It would be great if they could realize their responsibility in understanding how they impact these spaces the physical spaces that they move into um, not just each person individually but as a mass of um, incoming fluctuating population of people who are not from san francisco who have the money to afford rising rents and landlords who take advantage of that situation to inflate rent mm -hmm. um, I think understanding that situation and the role they play could help us make better decisions as a community. Um, but I also think it takes more than just the advocates. It takes more than just policymakers. It takes everybody listening to each other to create situations and a reality that we can all afford to live in and to thrive. Not just because I feel like San Francisco right now is holding on by a thread um, for families just trying to survive here. But I'd really like to see families thriving, you yeah. know. And I think that's a that's a stretch right now because policy doesn't really reflect what the people need. And what the people need, I feel like, are falling on deaf ears for politicians and policymakers. Um, so that's understanding that also, um, you know, the segregation of neighborhoods, I think, is important. Um because when we talk about Oakland or the Bay Area, there are neighborhoods that are that have denser populations of um, Asian Americans or, or Chinese Americans, like Chinatowns, and then there are neighborhoods that are historically black. But for 
what reasons, you know? Um, and so when we also look at those neighborhoods that are being wiped out for new developments, um, why was it so, why was it set up in a way that was so easy for them to say, let's reach into this um, neighborhood that's full of projects and just redevelop it yeah. without any, um, you know, other kind of without a consideration for why this neighborhood was here and in these conditions in the first place. Um, and so, yeah, the conditions are terrible, but I think you're right about that, that they're created. Those conditions were created. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that was a lot of really intense information there at the end. I think I'll need to process it for a second. Yeah, I 100% agree. Let's take a break, but I want to make sure everyone is left with that last question that Joy posed, which I think is incredibly important. Why was it set up in a way that was so easy for them to reach into this neighborhood that was full of projects and just redevelop it? We'll discuss right after the break. So Joy's question was, why was it set up in such a way that was so easy for them to reach into this neighborhood that was full of projects and just redevelop it? Well, there's actually a lot of really good and fairly recent research on this. Specifically, a recent book called The Color of Law that's written by Richard Rothstein of UC Berkeley. Basically, his argument is that federal, state, and local governments systematically imposed residential segregation in cities throughout the country. And the result of this segregation was pocketed and stratified cities, where it was easy to destroy entire neighborhoods because those communities lacked economic and political power. Anybody interested really should read the whole book because I can't do his argument justice here. But in short, he says it was the result of racial zoning, public housing that purposefully severed previously mixed communities, subsidies for builders to create whites-only suburbs, tax exemptions for prejudiced institutions, and support for violent resistance to African Americans in white neighborhoods. All these things came together to create the conditions for the easy redevelopment of these communities. 
So he argues that all this government policy specifically created segregated neighborhoods that were easy to manipulate and destroy for the city's needs? Yeah, that's pretty much it. And it's incredible to read all the specific instances where it happened not just in San Francisco, but throughout the country. But this history allowed and continues to allow cities to destroy neighborhoods, to create financial districts, to create interstates, to create monuments, in St. Louis, for example, and a lot more. We're not going to get any more into this right now, but we wanted to add a little recent research to the discussion we were having with Joy. Now let's get back to the interview. We're going to finish on a more hopeful note by talking about how people and organizations are working to reclaim space in the Bay Area. At this point, I sort of want to talk about how you think or how you've seen um, movements or protests or activism or occupation of space like make change and and or change perspectives or like lead to um, any sort of like social change. Yeah. Okay. Or what you're involved with around that area, if you are. Okay. Cool. Um, so right now we're sitting in the Bayanihai Community Center, mm-hmm. um, and it houses several different agencies and organizations, um, most of which are Filipino American. Um, and that includes the Bayanihan Equity Center, it includes Cool Arts, it includes the Filipino American Development Foundation, um, it includes the Archipelago Bookstore, which is, I think, the only Filipino bookstore in the United States. Um, wow. And what the organizations do here um, with the leadership of uh, FADF is going to create the um, Soma Pilipinas Cultural Heritage District. Um, and that, I think that was recognized in 2016. I may be incorrect about that. Um, but it's now reckon this space, this neighborhood, all the way stretching down to, I think, 11th Street um, is now the Soma Pilipinas Cultural Heritage District. Um, and part of that is doing, um, is making sure that people feel represented. And so there are like monthly meetings on, you know, what should we do for, um, should we put up a street sign that says welcome to solo filipinas should we do the um flags on the light poles which they did and we actually see faces of people who live and work in the neighborhood which is great um and then every month um every third saturday which is actually today there's a street festival called undiscovered night market um and at at undiscovered there are um there are vendors, there are food trucks, there are performers, there are organizations, um, there are artists, all of um, Filipino-American culture, politics, uh, interests, who gather to just be around each other. And it's actually going to be right across the street um, later tonight if oh, you're interested cool. in attending. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, they do this every month and it people from all over come to participate and it's huge. Um, and it's it's I think that's a really great way and example of reclaiming space. Um, and to give you a little context of uh, going back into gentrification, the Filipino community in San Francisco was displaced from San Francisco neighborhoods so many times in the 1970s from the I Hotel and then Yerba Buena in the 1990s. And then now we're also seeing a lot of interest in the Soma for the Fili- uh, Filipino. Um, demographic that lives in Soma now and they would be the ones who are also uh, who would also be highly impacted by those developments so I think it's a great way to claim this space and say we're still here we're thriving here 
Um, and if there are people who are interested, like you need to come and learn about us. You mm -hmm. need to know who we are um, to be part of this neighborhood. And I think that's a really beautiful way of kind of, you know, standing your ground and um, still celebrating the culture and heritage that we come from. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, that's awesome. I like that a lot. Um... There's just so much to dissect and to talk about yeah. when it comes to space. And I think... Um, like we were talking about earlier, there's so many different ways to define space mm -hmm. and, and how we take up space. And there are, there are times when, even as like, as a, as a woman of color, like sometimes I need to pass the mic to somebody else because they know more about the topic than I do, and I need to give them that platform. And and I think that's another way of understanding our role in space. Um, I have had to think about allyship for for a while not just as a as an, an as an ally for you know um, like uh, communities of color but also as um, as an ally for the LGB community and, sure. and understanding my role is that I do not have all the answers and I do not have the experience to necessarily um, exemplify what the advocacy is but if I have a platform if I have a voice that means I have an opportunity and that means I get to bring somebody up to that platform with me um, so Ooh, being, I like that That's being, yeah being yeah. able to acknowledge that uh, platform that I have and the opportunity that I have and the audience that I have um, and maybe not necessarily for the LGB community but for other folks I think that understanding the opportunity and being able to share the opportunity and step back and hand the opportunity to somebody else whose voice matters at this moment um, is more important than me mm -hmm. hearing myself speak. Yeah. Um, and then that to me is allyship. But yeah, I think um, for San Francisco, especially the topic of taking up space and displacement and gentrification is really important to us right now. And any San Francisco born and raised kid will tell you how much they hate it <laughs> right now yeah. um, and how much we want to hold on to the city that we know and we remember. Um, so yeah also thank you for having me on this project thank you so much this, this has been wildly fascinating I, I really liked it um do you have any last words or like <laughs> <laughs> things you want to plug or? yeah um definitely please check out my writing i share my research in the form of short essays they're like 10 minute reads i know asking people to read long essays <laughs> is quite a, a tall order so um check out my blog it's www joying.wordpress.com no it's not www. it's www.joyngsf.wordpress.com <laughs> can you remember my own website <laughs> <laughs> no worries um, and I'll post a, a link to that too in yeah. like the description cool awesome well thank you again this has been fantastic yeah. i've loved learning um about this area and your community um and your culture and your your pathway to where you are now and i wish you the best with all the work that you're doing um, thank you here. thank you same yeah. to you There's a lot of amazing work going on in San Francisco and in other parts of the country to reclaim space in these communities. And it's important that we listen to local activists like Joy to understand the needs of the community and the work that's being done to support it.
Yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard people talk about gentrification for years now, and this is the first chance that I've really had to get a more detailed look at how it affects people on a more local level. So I'm definitely going to do some more research about it. You got anything else? No, I think that's it for me. This is the end of episode three. This podcast is created by me with help from Cole. We don't have a studio or any funding, really, but we are still raising funds for hurricane relief in eastern North Carolina. So if you like the podcast and you want to support us, you can donate for our hurricane relief project at our GoFundMe at www.gofundme.com space hyphen two hyphen place. You can also reach out to me at kateunderwood at gmail.com. That's my first and last name, kateunderwood at gmail.com for details about how to get more involved in those efforts. Thanks again for listening. See you next time. <laughs>